While we are all tremendously proud of the Springboks and their World Cup final win over the All Blacks in Paris, we should also not jettison our critical faculties completely. There has been much talk, in the media and elsewhere, of what the books can teach us. They, the pundits say, can teach us about planning, cooperation, overcoming obstacles and mutual respect. They can tell us about inclusivity and winning. But can the idea of what the books have to teach us not be taken too far? This is sport after all. It is not life, which is messy. And it is not politics, which is messier still. Physical courage is not comparable to moral courage. In this podcast, I look at the reasons, often historical, for why South Africans want sporting victory to mean more than what it possibly means. Welcome to The Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about some of the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. Halfway through 1991, two men walked into Nelson Mandela's office in Latuli House. One of them was Ali Bacha, the other Clive Lloyd, the former captain of the West Indies. Bacha had bumped into Lloyd at Lord's a couple of months before and, with characteristic chutzpah, asked Lloyd if he'd like to come and coach in Soweto. Lloyd didn't think twice, but he had a precondition. He would only come if Bacha could arrange for him to meet Mandela. The most famous ex-political prisoner in the world was a busy man. The day Bacher and Lloyd arrived was no exception. A group of Swedish journalists was just leaving as Bacher and Lloyd were being ushered in. Cheekily, one of the Swedish journalists asked Mandela if he thought that South Africa should be allowed to compete in the 1992 Cricket World Cup. Readmission to the International Cricket Council was one thing. Was it not too soon? given that apartheid was still on the statute books, to have South Africa on the field of play. In calm, measured tones, Mandela replied that he saw no problem with South Africa being allowed to play in the next year's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand, if the ICC voted in favour. The Swedish journalist scribbled this all down. Bacher thought nothing of the question until the following day, when he opened his copy of the Star newspaper. A syndicated news story was pasted across the front page of the paper's morning edition. Quote, Mandela says yes to World Cup, read the headline. Bacher realized it was going to be a hectic couple of days. He cleared his throat. Once he had composed himself, he told his long-suffering secretary, Carol Green, to take lunch at her desk. She wasn't to stray too far from her phones. Although the West Indian delegate at the next ICC meeting abstained from voting on whether South Africa should be allowed to participate in the 1992 World Cup, many others gave the proposal an unequivocal yes. Kepler Vessels duly took the side to Australia, leaving Clive Rice, the upcountry favourite to captain the side, growling in frustration. In March... Halfway through the tournament, with South Africa unsure of whether they would reach the semi-finals, the vote yes for change referendum happened back home. The question asked of the referendum voters was, quote, Do you support continuation of the reform process 
which the state president began on the 2nd of February 1990 and which is aimed at a new constitution through negotiation. The cricketers were allowed to vote at the South African Embassy in Canberra. Very few of them, with the exception of swing bowler Merrick Pringle and tour manager Alan Jordan, took the opportunity to do so. Of the 15 regions that voted countrywide, 14 of them voted yes for change. Even Kronstadt voted yes, although by a stump-thin majority. The only exception was Petersburg in the then northern Transvaal. The vote gave President F.W. de Klerk the mandate he needed, although he knew only too well that the state was bankrupt. Disinvestment, boycott and war had cost South Africa dear. 24 hours later, de Klerk said, quote, Today we have closed the book on apartheid. After being opposed to the vote because it was only for a limited segment of the population, the African National Congress reluctantly accepted that it was a necessary step in a longer walk. They realized it meant this allowed de Klerk to arrive at the negotiating table sure of what his constituency wanted. He had the authority to negotiate on their behalf, while they had the moral and political authority of having spent years in either prison or exile. They would not come to the negotiating table as equals, but they were now closer than they had been. Such stories are known in outline, if not in shading. Less well known is the fact that the South African team were going to be pulled from the World Cup if the vote in the referendum was no. Bacher and his fellow administrator Jeff Dakin believed that they had staked their credibility on convincing the ICC that South Africa was on the road to becoming a better place. If the referendum vote suggested otherwise, they would be more than simply embarrassed. They would have been revealed to have been dissemblers. There was only one thing for it, pull the side out. But that was never necessary. Frederick van Slubbert, the leader of the official opposition, believed that South Africa's participation in the World Cup was a vital force in pushing white South Africa towards change. He thought it stumped up the yes vote by as much as 10% across the 15 voting regions. Looking at the referendum numbers is revealing. The polls in the far north, the northwest and the centre, for example, were all close. Without Slabbert's estimated fabled 10%, the yes vote wouldn't have become a no vote, but it would have made the overall vote far closer than the nearly 68% who voted yes. This historical detour demonstrates, if demonstration were needed, that the water of sport in pre- and post-apartheid South Africa has always been laced with a generous dop or two of politics. One can easily think of other examples of the relationship sometimes tortured, between sport and politics in Mzanzi. Think, for example, of the persistent theme of the big man syndrome in South African sport, a syndrome which is, in essence, political, because many of the characters whose names I'm about to mention had self-evident political agendas. The big man in sports syndrome is something uniquely South African. It doesn't happen to the same extent in the rest of the world, with the possible exception of South America. In apartheid days, it was folk like Donnie Craven and Peter Hayne and Bill Jardine and Dennis Brutus. In the transition, 
It was characters such as Louis Late and Bacher himself. Post-apartheid, it has been individuals such as Yuri Rue and Gerald Majola. Such characters are larger and more visible in South Africa than they are in the rest of the world, although, happily, the cult of administrative sporting personality is diminishing as South Africa's democracy becomes more robust. Think, too, of the kerfuffle over sporting emblems. Was it not Joost van Westhuizen who complained of, quote, the pink flower when there was a debate about the protea replacing the springbok on the national rugby jersey? Think about the racialization of sport through quotas and targets. Think about Black Lives Matter and taking the knee. Think of Quinny de Kock's retirement. That's the retirement that took place before the latest, more definitive retirement, by the way. Sport in South Africa doesn't only operate in an already politicized environment. As a result of our unique history, it functions in ways that suggest sport expresses the deepest recesses of our national identity, our soul, if you like. From here, it is only a small step to giving international sporting success a weight out of all proportion to its real significance. Look at it this way. South Africa was banned from competing in the Olympics from Rome in 1960 until Barcelona in 1992. South Africa was never a member of FIFA until the post-apartheid period. South Africa's cricketers were denied an opportunity to play international cricket for 21 years, from 1970 until the so-called Lightning Tour to India in 1991. This means that there's always a we'll show you or residue of this in South Africa's sporting endeavour. It can mean that sport can mean too much. Finally, contemporary South African teams operate in an environment of government failure and incompetence. Since it came to power in 1994, the ANC-led government, for example, has never come to grips with crime. Not really. It has never come to grips with public transport. Tragically, it has never come to grips with secondary education in township schools. It has never got to grips with electricity generation, let alone establishing a culture in the municipalities, the larger proportion of which never get clean audits and are frequently dysfunctional, in which the correct thing to do is pay for the power those in the municipality consume. This, I might add, is a money-making wheeze for the municipalities themselves, because they resell electricity to their consumers at a considerable markup. Amidst such ubiquitous dysfunction, it is understandable that sport is something around which we rally. The Springboks, in retaining the World Cup, have made us all immensely proud. They are easy to understand, while the country they represent is often fiendishly difficult to understand. That they won their three knockout games by only one point makes the pleasure of winning even deeper, not to say uncanny. Winning by a point three times in a row speaks to our inherited sense of superstition. It looks weird, as though the World Cup is speaking to us in a vaguely known language we don't really understand. Maybe, we think to ourselves, maybe we were destined to win the World Cup from the very beginning. Maybe there's some higher purpose at work, which we can't now divine, but which will reveal itself in due course. Yes, 
The Springboks are remarkable at World Cup rugby. There have been 10 World Cups, and yet there have been only four winners, South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, and England. Only once in 10 tournaments has a team from the North won the competition, England under Clive Woodward in Australia in 2003. Although France have reached the final on three occasions, in the inaugural tournament in 1987, in 1999, and in 2011, they have never won the World Cup. The thing is, South Africa have not participated in all 10 tournaments, and here's why. In 1977, the Commonwealth Heads of State met at Glen Eagles outside of Edinburgh. They discussed the matter of sporting ties with South Africa. This was a hot topic because several African countries had boycotted the Montreal Olympics in protest against the All Blacks Tour of the Republic in 1976, the year of the Soweto riots. It was decided at Glen Eagles to actively discourage Commonwealth members from having sporting ties with apartheid South Africa. This subsequently became known as the Glen Eagles Agreement. The normalization of this anti-apartheid sporting stance internationally via such agreements clearly influenced the fact that the Springboks weren't allowed to participate in the first two World Cups. Interestingly, and I think grotesquely, South Africa was never formally expelled from the International Rugby Board, but it was felt that their participation at the World Cups in 1987, remember P.W. Buddha's declaration of the state of emergency in 1986, and 1991, would have been politically insensitive to the rugby-playing community, the Commonwealth, and the civilized world at large. The Springboks have won four of the eight tournaments they've played in since 1995, with New Zealand winning two of those, Australia won, and England won. This makes South Africa's record substantially better than the next best-placed team, New Zealand, who have three World Cup wins overall. The Springboks' winning rate in the eight tournaments in which they've participated averages out at a rate of 50%. By contrast, the All Blacks won three of the ten tournaments in which they've played. That's an average of 30%. If we put a microscope to this, the picture underneath the lens begins to move in interesting ways. In the last three World Cups, 2015, 2019 and 2023, South Africa finished third, first and first respectively. Remember that they were losing semi-finalists eight years ago, beating Argentina 24-13 in the third-place playoff at the London Olympic Stadium after having lost their semi-final to that year's eventual winners, the All Blacks. This represents a period of sustained excellence very different to what passed before. In 1995, for instance, Springbok coach Kitch Christie christened the Bok coaching role as, quote, a hospital job. Eight years later, after the horrors of Kampstaldraat and losing 29-9 to New Zealand in the 2003 World Cup quarterfinal, then Bok coach Rudolf Strauli was at his unapologetic best. Quote, we have not fallen behind in world rugby. Other countries have simply gone ahead, he said with a brazen contrariness of the overindulged child. We live in different times now. 
They are more racially sensitive. They are more inclusive. They are less likely to look to the dark days of our military past for making men out of men. If we are to look for a narrative of social inspiration in sport, these eight years of sustained success provide it. A country is built not on the hysterical platitudes of a single feel-good victory. It is not built on cheesy, we-are-the-last-line-of-defense metaphors. Rather, it is built on the deep eight or ten-year foundations of planning, preparation, and vision. This arc of success is truly reason for wonder. Where in the rest of the world is there such a national dominance in a single team sport? The Canadians in Olympic ice hockey, who have won the gold medal nine times since ice hockey became an Olympic sport at Antwerp in 1920. The Italians in water polo, who have, like Hungary, won four gold medals at the World Aquatic Championships since the 1970s, Jamaica's sprinters, it would be interesting to find out. Perhaps we will do so in a future episode. For all of our national pride, a pride that remained high on Sunday and eased into similar highs through at least the first half of the week, some further notes of caution. Given the centrality of sport in the history of this country, and given the fact that sport is part of our everyday mental geography, it is natural that many men and women on the street should be extrapolating, sometimes wildly, from the victory. With less responsibility, some media pundits are doing so in cavalier fashion too, having good fun with mobilizing every teamwork cliche in the known world. If only nation-building, have you also noticed the sudden reappearance of that mothballed phrase, where simple as running around on grass, pushing, jumping, running and shoving for 55 minutes before retiring to the sidelines to try and not look irritable that you aren't running around where you once recently were. What follows is a caricature, but it isn't so much of a caricature that you won't recognize it. Said caricature goes something like this. Quote, Look how focused the box were throughout the tournament, how unified. They had a flexible game plan and stuck to it. Everyone bought into the vision. Wasn't it great? Four of their best players, Lucanio Am, Luit de Jaja, Andre Pollard and Malcolm Marx, were injured either before or during the tournament. Bongi Mbonambi was injured in the fourth minute of the final. Who copes with such setbacks? Those setbacks happened off the field. But what about those that happened on it? We were behind until the 67th minute against France when Eben Etzebeth, like an uncle at the bottom of the garden, charged for the line with four of his nephews hanging off his back. And that Owen Farrell drop goal in the semi-final? How casual was that? How difficult not to get intimidated into thinking that victory was beyond us. If only we could push as a country, like the box eight pushed in those scrums, Damien Willems are called for after marking the ball against France. If only we could think our way to doing the equivalent in policy planning of a 7-1 bench split. If only we had Sia as our leader and not Cyril, the amiable procrastinator. Cyril has a swerve. We know he does. He would have been a good outside centre. Only he does everything so slowly that he might fall over while swerving. While we are rosy-cheeked with pride, 
and will be for weeks to come, the fact of the matter is that sport doesn't, as a rule, imitate life. We should be careful reading too much into the Springboks' 12-11 win against the All Blacks in the World Cup final and extrapolate from it. One of the reasons why rugby appears to offer us lessons about contemporary South Africa is because it tells us a story that we all understand. The story is told through the lens of a television camera that tells that story wonderfully well. It is a story with a beginning, kickoff, and a middle, half-time, and an end, the final whistle blown by a horrendously put-upon referee whose vilification by the losers is only just beginning. At the end of the end, there's a result. The result is finite, known, tangible. We trust the result, particularly when it's in our favor. But so often in the realm of human affairs, the results aren't known, or if they are, they are up for debate. The amiable procrastinator tells us, for example, that more people than ever before have houses with running water and electricity. Is a house a house if it was built by a fly-by-night contractor and has missing tiles in the roof? Is it enough to say that more people have electricity if most of them cannot afford to pay for it? You see where I'm going here. The more we dig into the contemporary reality of South Africa, the more complicated, the more difficult it becomes. This is why we should be suspicious of the shallow language that spews out of narcotic mouths after sporting victory. It is not to be trusted. Sportsmen are there to play sport. Editorializing about how much better off we would be if we heeded the lessons of sporting victory is the worst kind of complacent nonsense. We are smarter than that, and we deserve better from our so-called journalists. Remember, life isn't made up of two teams wearing different colored shirts who play once a week for 80 minutes. You don't have eight players on the bench in real life. You don't have Rassi, Jacques and Felix telling you what to do, and you don't have Andre to do it for you. In your life, you mostly wing it doing it for yourself and making it up as you go along. That's what the government in South Africa also does. They make it up as they go along. The results are there for all to see. Most of the commentators are saying, the books provide us with a blueprint for getting our shit together. I'm saying that, given the centrality of sport in our history and our national discourse, I understand why we look to lessons from the books to help us get our shit together. But I'm also saying more. I'm saying that we wouldn't be looking to the box for a blueprint to getting our shit together if we'd really been getting our shit together as a country. The sport as salvation narrative became stronger and stronger the more the tournament progressed, but it didn't start at the World Cup. I first began to notice it with Banyana Banyana last year. They were offering more hope and inspiration than a five-man midfield. Inspiration is great, I have no quibble with that, but hope? Our sportsmen and women shouldn't feel burdened by having to provide wide-ranging social hope, as distinguished from narrow sporting hope. When they are being asked to, and when we believe they are, it means only one thing. Elsewhere, things have gone badly, badly wrong.
If you enjoyed this episode of The Luke Alfred Show, please like, share, follow and subscribe. I write full scripts for the show in the form of long-form essays and these are all available on my Substack. To get written episodes of The Luke Alfred Show a day early on Fridays, please check out The Luke Alfred Substack. You can hear The Luke Alfred Show on YouTube, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I release a new episode every Saturday at 10.30 a.m. 